Okay, Matthew chapter 2. We move along in this incredible gospel looking at King Jesus. Jesus the King, the promised Messiah, the Christ. And in chapter 1, we really saw the evidence of his lineage being royal. Jesus is indeed from the royal human line of Israel. The son of David, the son of Abraham, he is the Christ. We saw that in uh, verses 1 to 18. And then in verses 18 to 25, we saw that Jesus' origins are not just human, but they are divine. Jesus is the Son of God. He's God come in the flesh, born of a virgin. And so, so far, we look and we, we see his kingship validated by his lineage. And now in chapter 2, Matthew highlights how certain individuals respond or receive the Christ. How would the king be received? That's the question we'll ask looking at this whole chapter this morning. How would the king be received? We see in this chapter two juxtaposed positions, okay, on how these people would receive the king. First, we see the wise men who receive the king and worship him. And then we will see Herod, who is a fool and rejects the king. Two caricatures, two images of how people in general will receive Christ. And so my question for you this morning, as you look to your own heart for application, is how will you receive Jesus? How will you receive the King of Kings? Jesus, God who came in flesh. That's the question for us this morning. Now, we've read through the chapter already. Now we will do a short summary. I want to run through the events again just to make sure you understand the story. After Jesus was born during the reign of Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They were asking, where has the king of the Jews been born? We saw his star and have come to worship him. Now Herod the king, he's upset by their question. He calls the chief priests and scribes to ask them, where is this Christ supposed to be born? They respond with the prophecy of Micah, Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Now, I have a map up here, I, I believe, of the, the events of these, paragraph, or these uh, chapters. Now, you see Jerusalem there at the bottom of the map. You see Bethlehem? That's not but a, a stone's throw distance from Jerusalem. Very, very close to where the Magi come to meet Herod. Okay, so Herod summons the wise men secretly. He tells them to go to Bethlehem, find the child, then come back to Jerusalem and tell him exactly where he is so that he can worship him too. Now, it's pretty obvious that that is not Herod's intention. His intention is not to worship Jesus. But this is what he tells the wise men. And so the wise men are, are sent off from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and the star reappears in the sky, and they follow it to Jesus' exact location. And you know where it leads them? Not to a stable but to a house. Jesus is in a house. You see that in the chapter. Verse 11. By the way, uh, Jesus is no longer in a stable. This is likely months after Jesus was born. The family had relocated to a house. And so I just want to point out that many of your nativity scenes are wrong. You place the wise men in the nativity scene with 
Jesus in a stable, and that's just not how it happened. Jesus showed up at the house months later. Um, I, I have a, we have friends who uh, set up the wise men in the opposite room of the house. Their nativity scene is here and the wise men over here, but they're on their way, okay? They're on their way. Also, you will notice that in the text, it does not tell us the number of wise men. We are not given a number of wise men. We're giving the number of gifts. There's three gifts, but there were likely more than three wise men, in fact. So that is also a, uh, a Christmas myth, and uh, they probably traveled in a larger caravan. There were probably more of them, just kind of looking at the scene unfold in chapter 2. Also, although, although these were noblemen, they were not kings. They were not kings. So the song's wrong too. Uh, Merry Christmas, all right? We have, we have messed up this account many a different ways. They were not kings. They were noblemen who were king makers. They would appoint kings in their land. And we'll learn more about the wise men uh, later on in the message. But nevertheless, we, that when the wise men find this child, they worship him and they give him gifts, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men are warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Joseph is warned in a dream to flee the country from Herod. And so they go down to Egypt. And the wise men take another route home, likely going around the the south there maybe and and around Jerusalem to avoid Herod. And when Herod realizes this, he retaliates and he kills all the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. A horrific tragedy, a horrific massacre. Shortly after these events, Herod dies, and an angel of the Lord appears to tell Joseph that his family is safe to go back to Israel. And so Joseph and Mary return to Israel with Jesus, their child, but they decide to go back to their hometown of Nazareth, which you could see is far north, and they avoid Judea, where Herod's son, Archelaus, now reigned. All right, so that's a fast fly over the events. Let's look more closely at this passage and what it tells us about Jesus, the Christ. Before we see the two juxtaposed positions about how people would receive Jesus, there are four prophecies fulfilled in this chapter, and we must look at them. We must look and see how Jesus fulfills these Old Testament prophecies. Now, you remember, Matthew is the one who puts Jesus in the middle of the bulletin board so to speak. And he, he puts all these pins in these Old Testament prophecies, and he, he draws lines that point ultimately to the Messiah, Jesus. He's trying to convince his Jewish audience that Jesus is indeed their king. What Matthew also does is um, he shows the continuity between the Testaments. He shows how the Old Testament story connects with the New Testament. That is that the Old Testament has a very strong connection to the New Testament. They both speak about the same God. They really tell the same story. Yahweh redeems his people, and he will establish his kingdom. Jesus, God in the flesh, manifested in the New Testament, is the one by which God will accomplish his plan. And so these quotes of Old Testament passages are are like links in the chain between the two Testaments, holding them together. 
So they're very, very important for us to look at. Matthew adds four more links to the chain. Four more links to the chain, and you'll see them on the bottom of this image here. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, verse 6. Jesus would be the son who would come out of Egypt, verse 15. Verse 18, Jesus would be the hope through tragedy. And then verse 23, Jesus would be derided, derided as a Nazarene. These four prophecies fulfilled in Christ. Let's go through them, explain them a little bit. Number one, born in Bethlehem. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. The first prophecy is pretty straightforward. Herod asks the chief priests and scribes where the Christ would be born. And they know the answer right off the top of their heads. It's Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. This is a quote from Micah 5.2. They expected Jesus to be born in what is called the city of David. It was a small village outside of Jerusalem, but had incredible significance. And the main significance really is that the Messiah would be born there. And so add it to the list of prophecies that Jesus fulfills exactly, literally, and specifically. He was born in Bethlehem. His arrival is not an accident or a coincidence of events. Matthew shows very clearly this was God's plan to fulfill his promises faithfully. And he does. It's like the neon light pointing to Jesus just gets brighter and brighter. Look, this is your king, Israel. The other three prophecies in the passage are not so straightforward. It seems, in fact, at first glance that these next two are Old Testament passages that are taken way out of context. If you read the cross-reference, the Old Testament passage, it seems like what, what does this have to do with Jesus? This is talking about something totally different. If you look at uh, verse 15, out of Egypt, I called my son. That is a, a quote from Hosea 11.1. 1. Hosea 11.1. 1. And you'll notice if you read that text that it doesn't point forward, it points backward. It points Israel to past events, specifically the events of the Exodus, when God saved his people out of slavery in Egypt. There's no explicit mention of the Messiah in this verse. And so we ask the question, what does it have to do with Jesus coming out of Egypt? The next prophecy fulfilled in Christ, which is kind of interesting, it seems to be out of context, is verse 18. You see there in the text, uh, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is taken from Jeremiah 31.15. Jeremiah 31.15. And if you read that passage, you'll notice it's not talking about the Messiah. It's talking about the exile to Babylon. Talking about another event in Israel's past where it was very unfortunate, a tragic event. Israel was taken out of their homeland, and they were deported to a foreign nation and basically taken into slavery there. That's why Rachel is weeping in Jeremiah 31. She's weeping because 
Well, the children of Israel have all been taken from their land. They've been exported to Babylon and other nations. So what does this have to do with Jesus' story? What does this have to do with the mass massacre in Bethlehem? And then you come to verse 23, the fourth prophecy. Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Now, you could flip through your Old Testament 25 times, frontwards and backwards, and you'll never find that prophecy. This is not a direct quote from a prophet or a specific prophecy. You will not find this reference in the Old Testament. And so what is this? Again, what is Matthew doing here? It seems like a bit of a stretch. He's pulling strings. But that's not the case. That's not the case. And with deeper study and more cross-referencing and reading, you understand what Matthew's trying to do here. He's mindful of his audience. They're Jews, right? And he knows that they understand the Old Testament. And we, we see him with these prophecies. He makes a typological connection. A typological connection. He, he identifies a type. A type. You can write this in your notes. But a type is an Old Testament idea, event, or person who foreshadows and connects with the New Testament idea, event, or person, i.e. Christ in this case. Now, we can't make everything typological, okay? We can't just make allegorical connections with every verse in the Bible to Jesus. We don't want to do that. That would be bad exegesis. You know, some people say, you know, just as Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, so the Messiah would wander in the wilderness for 40 days and be tempted by Satan. That's an interesting correlation, but actually the New Testament doesn't make that explicit connection. And so what we want to do, and we want to exegete and understand God's Word and exposit it, is we only want to make those typological connections that the New Testament explicitly makes. So Matthew here, being a divinely inspired author, right, writing, on, uh, writing really through the Holy Spirit as superintended his writing, and it is divinely inspired, God-breathed Scripture, well then we understand what Matthew is doing here, is that God is making a connection between these events and the person of Jesus Christ. So, what is this connection that God is making between these two ideas? Go back to verse 15. Let's look at this second prophecy. The sun comes out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. And Matthew says the Lord spoke this by the prophet. And the ultimate fulfillment is in Christ. The connection is Christ. Well, if you read the whole book of Hosea, it's about God's loyal love despite Israel's spiritual adultery. Really, it's a graphic book describing the people of Israel really as a, a prostitute who's forsaken God and worshipped false idols. But despite this, God would faithfully and loyally love Israel. That's the point of Hosea. And in chapter 11... God describes Israel, the people of Israel, as the rebellious son. Even after being redeemed from slavery, this quote, coming out of Egypt, they continue to disobey. They continue to worship false gods. God, despite all this, remains loyal in his love toward them. 
with a similar pattern, yet different outcome. Jesus is not the rebellious son out of Egypt. He is the righteous son out of Egypt. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's loyal love to the people of Israel. He would come out of Egypt not to disobey God, but to obey God and accomplish ultimate redemption for his people. Jesus is the better son out of Egypt. The third prophecy here, hope through tragedy. Hope through tragedy. How do the events of the exile correlate or connect with the events of the massacre in Bethlehem? Well, Rachel's weeping for her children who are going into exile. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 goes on to make a new covenant with the people of Israel. A covenant of hope for a people that are going into exile. God says, out of such a tragedy, and in the midst of such a tragedy, as all the people going to exile, here's your hope. I will make a promise and a covenant with you. And God keeps that covenant. He keeps that promise that he would save them, that he would preserve the people of Israel. So now we look forward and we look at Jesus, who out of such a tragedy as the mass killing of Bethlehem's children, we see a beacon of hope. The Messiah would be spared. The Messiah would be preserved. The mediator of the new covenant would be saved. And he would accomplish that work, that ministry. Jesus is the hope through tragedy. So Jesus is the better son who comes out of Egypt. Jesus is the hope through tragedy. And finally, prophecy number four, Jesus would be derided as a Nazarene. If you look closely at the language in this verse, Matthew is saying something different than he said before. Instead of referring to one prophet in one quote, he refers to the prophets plural. Do you see that in the text? Verse 23. So that was spoken by the prophets plural. So instead of focusing on one specific text, he refers to more the general teaching of the prophets in the Old Testament. The general teachings of the Messiah. And what did the Old Testament tell us about how the Messiah would be received? Well, if you look at Isaiah 53, he tells us that he would be despised, rejected, uh, from whom men would hide their faces, would esteem him not. Psalm 22, again, alludes to a despised and scorned Messiah. All who see him mock him, wagging their heads. Psalm 69 alludes to the reality that the Messiah would be mocked, dishonored, and even given sour wine, which happened explicitly when he was hanging on the cross. You remember that? Put all of these passages together, and the prophets tell us that the Messiah will be mocked, he will be rejected, he will be scorned, despised derided, derided. And so the fact that he was called a Nazarene, which by the way, is not a title of esteem and honor. It was not, you know, just a kind reference to his hometown. Jesus being called a Nazarene was a a derided term. It was a derided title, one of despising and rejection. Do you remember what 
Uh, you remember what uh, uh, I believe it was Nathaniel said in John 1. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Implication is nothing good, right, comes out of Nazareth. How about in John 7, the Pharisees mock Nicodemus for defending Jesus, and they say, are you from Galilee too? The region of Nazareth? Jesus was called Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Not a term of esteem and honor, but a term of derision and rejection and mockery. So what God's Word said would happen, did happen. It was fulfilled in Christ. Being called a Nazarene, He was derided as a Nazarene. People would not receive Him as the true Messiah, the true King. And you would think at this point, with all these prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus, how could the Jews miss it? How could they not catch this and see Jesus as their King? Well, that leads us to really the two positions in this chapter. How would people receive the Messiah? We see two different postures, two different positions on how people receive the Messiah. On the one hand, we have the wise men who are foreigners and forerunners of the Gentiles who would receive him as king, and they are indeed wise. And then you have Herod, king of the Jews, who rejects him as a fool. And really, Herod becomes a caricature of the Jews' posture toward Jesus in the rest of the account. They would also reject him as fools, doing a lot of the things that Herod tried to do. Herod was unsuccessful in killing the Christ. The Jews were successful. They would kill a truly innocent man. So let's look at these two characters. And again, I want you to ask yourself, what is your posture towards Jesus? Do you receive Him and worship Him as King? Or do you pridefully reject Him as Herod and the Jews? Alright, so let's look more closely at the wise men, the magi. Magi the wise. Magi the wise. Wise men or magi, which is the Greek word. We see these men are from the east, verse 1. They were probably Persian, but not certain about their exact origins. The, the Magi were a noble men of a noble clan. They were kind of functioned like priests in their land. They're interested in astrology and signs. They were familiar with the Jewish religion and the prophets because they could identify that the king of the Jews was coming. They were anticipating that. But they were not kings. Uh, an important distinction here. They were king makers. That's interesting when you think about what they do when they come and worship Jesus. They're king makers. Like I said, in their land, they were uh, kind of viewed as priests. They were noble ones, respected and influential people. In their foreign land, people would go to them to appoint a king or to validate someone's kingship. They would watch for signs. They would have some religiosity to them, some even turning to magic. And so for those reasons, in ancient times, they were well-respected and they were trusted mediators between the supernatural and the natural. And so their opinion, their stamp of validation, their wisdom 
was highly sought after. Isn't it interesting that the chief priests and the scribes of Israel, the Jewish nobility, the Jewish kingmakers, would not travel a stone's throw to Bethlehem to validate the claims of these magi. But the magi, foreign priests, would travel hundreds of miles to worship Jesus. Wow. Talk about two different postures toward Christ. Their intention is to worship Jesus from the very start. We see that in verse 2. We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Herod knew this was their intention. And so he lies and says, hey, tell me where the Messiah is so that I too may come and worship him. Verse 8. And what do the Magi do when they find Jesus? Verse 11. They fell down and they worshipped him. Mission accomplished. Their desire was to worship Jesus. To validate him as the true king. This is the proper posture towards Jesus. This is the right position to worship Him. This is the kind of reception He's worthy of. Even as a child, a a couple months old, they recognize this is more than a king. This is more than a child. This is God in human flesh. They worship Him. Wow. Magnificent. I, I mean, I bet all of us have at some point just imagined the scene of these noble wise men, wealthy, respected, influential men coming into this house and bowing at the feet of a couple-month-old baby. Wow. That should be all our postures at Christmas time. Worshiping. Not just seeing the cuteness of the babe, you know, in the, in the manger, but recognizing this is God coming in the flesh. We worship Him. Worship Him. Bowing our knees in submission, in humility, recognizing the true King of Kings. That's what the Magi's did. And what is their act of worship? What do they do in response? What, how do they worship? Well, we see in the text, look at verse 11. Then opening their treasures, they offered Him gifts. Valuables. Treasures, earthly treasures. This is how they worship. They, they offer him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I want to pause here and point something out that is scriptural, not just in this passage. But giving, financial giving, is an act of worship. It is. Giving is worship. Do you see it as such? Or is it just kind of a routine habit or discipline? No, the Magi saw giving as worship. By the way, that's why it's part of our regular worship service on Sundays. It's not a routine religious duty. We don't throw money into the, the, the basket as it goes forward or you know, just put our finances on auto deposit so we don't have to think about it. And, but giving is a part of our worship. Our worship and our offering to God. It's not just a, a good tax write-off. It's as much an integral part of our worship service as as singing, as scripture reading, as communion, even the sermon. 
It's a way that the body could tangibly participate in the Great Commission, supporting the mission of the church. And the Scriptures identify financial giving with worship. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 4. He commends the Philippians and he tells them, you know, you guys were the only ones that supported me on my missionary journey financially. He recognizes their financial gift in verse 18, Philippians 4.18, as a fragrant offering, as a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Wow. So Paul says, hey, those financial gifts you gave to me in support of my ministry was not ultimately worship of me, or, or it wasn't about me. It was about worshiping God. It was an act of worship. Financial giving or your offering is worship. Nothing less. Nothing less. You know, just a point about financial stewardship, your spending really reflects your heart, doesn't it? It reflects the things that you value. You'll spend your money on what's important to you. You show me where your money goes and I'll tell you what you love, what you value, what you worship. Generous giving, sacrificial giving, reflects a heart of sacrificial worship. It's about you and the Lord, not you and other men. And so we ought to give generously. We ought to give sacrificially. It should be from the first fruits of our income, not the leftovers. Now, listen, we live in California. I understand I understand there are basic needs that need to be covered. Housing, mortgage, rent, utilities, gas, food, clothing. Those are just some of the things, you know, and it's like another two times the amount living here than any other state. I understand that. It's hard. But I want to ask you, is is giving, is giving a priority? Is it a priority of your heart? Is it a reflection of your heart and your worship to God? Or are you just giving the Lord what's left over? Whatever, you know, hey, if I have any more at the end of the month, after everything else is covered, I'll give that to the Lord. No, shouldn't our giving be a first cut? Maybe it's not as much as the other things that, you know, like mortgage and rent and those kind of things, but it it comes out of the first fruits of our hearts. You know, I'm going to give the Lord the first priority here. I'm going to cut that first. And then I'll cover my expenses. Trusting the Lord that He will provide for our needs as He promised He would. I just want to encourage you as we look at the Magi and they give according to their means. They're wealthy men. They give wealthy gifts. But seeing their act of giving as an act of worship, not a routine, let me drop the money in the offering box before I enter the house and worship the Messiah. It's part of their worship. One of my mentors was telling me about his wife, and, and uh, he was kind of saying this jokingly, frustrated, but also just incredibly blown away by his wife's generosity. He would come home from work after he got a pay raise, and he would be so excited to tell his wife, hey, honey, I got a pay raise. And the first thing she would say every time, oh, great, we can give more. And it would just convict him. He was all excited, you know, hey, well, I'm a little bit, live more comfortably. We can, you know, splurge a little bit. Honey, look at I got the pay raise. And she was thinking about giving the first fruits to the Lord. 
What a convicting, convicting, convicting thought. I just ask you, does your financial giving reflect a heart of true worship, or is it reluctant? It should be cheerful, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So evaluate it. Evaluate it as we look at the Magi who worship by giving. So these men give three gifts, and, and greater than their monetary value was their significance. The three gifts are gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's walk through them. Gold is the medal of kings. It's the medal of kings, which is appropriate because Jesus is who? The king of kings. Oh, I love this. The first gift we see listed is the, king that, is the gift that identifies him as the king, the true king, gold. So this gift we see is more than a generous donation. It's a statement of Jesus' royalty. The second gift, frankincense. This is the fragrance of worship, which is appropriate because Jesus is God. Incense is a part of temple worship. It was blended into meal offerings to give them a pleasant odor. The idea is that the fragrance would rise to the nostrils of God and that it would please Him. And here they give the fragrance to God directly. Whether the wise men recognized it or not, this gift of frankincense was more than a nice smell. It was more than a nice perfume. It is a statement of His deity. Jesus is king. Jesus is God. Thirdly, the gift of myrrh. Now, this is an interesting one. Myrrh was the preparation for death. A valuable spice, but was used mostly for embalming dead bodies. Jesus was embalmed in myrrh. So were other dead bodies. Used to prepare those dead bodies to preserve them from the stench it's interesting that the wise men would offer myrrh as a gift. Almost a foreshadowing of what? Jesus' death. This is identifying a statement of Jesus as human. Jesus' humanity. Also worth noting is that myrrh was a mild anesthetic. Remember, myrrh was mixed with the wine, spices mixed with the wine given to Jesus or offered to him so that it would numb the pain on the cross, but Jesus refused it. Whether the wise men recognized the significance of this or not, the significance of this gift is a statement that Jesus was indeed a man, and ultimately he would be a man that dies for the sake of us and our salvation. Three gifts of great monetary value, but greater still in their significance, are the theological statements that these gifts make about Jesus. He is the King. He is God. And He was a man. A man who died for our sins. So appropriately, the wise men worship the King. They give valuable treasures that bear great significance. Is this your posture towards the King? Is this your posture? Well, let's turn and look at the fool. Herod the fool. Herod the fool. Herod was infamously insecure and rash in anger. Here are, are a list of his accomplishments. Herod 
established uh, Caesarea, the port city, naming it after Caesar in Rome. He was the ultimate politician, quintessential, power-hungry and people-pleasing. He was elected under the umbrella of the Roman Empire to rule Judea on Rome's behalf, seeking always to impress his Caesar. Rome also, or sorry, uh, Herod also played the middleman between Rome and the Jews, the Jewish nobility. He was a smart politician, and so he would do incredible things for the Jews too, like pay back taxes one year that he had taken. He would also start the rebuild of one of the greatest temples Israel or Jerusalem has ever seen, Herod's great temple, who would eventually be destroyed in 70 AD. But he started that building project to please the Jews. Herod was so insecure, so rash in his anger, so worried about anybody usurping his throne that he would murder his family. He had his wife's brother murdered, killed out of suspicion. Eventually, he had his wife Miriam and her two sons, their two sons, killed out of suspicion. Five days before he died, he had a third son, Antipater, killed out of suspicion. In fact, even though there's no extra-biblical evidence of this mass murder of the children in Bethlehem, most historians nod toward it, saying, yeah, that fits Herod. He would do something like that and then not record it, not have it documented. Always concerned about his reputation. He had the chief priests and the scribes in his pocket. He summoned them in a moment for a religious question. Herod had spent his life working towards and protecting his power and his reputation. His aim in life was self-glory. Self-glory. Pride was his motive. Anything or anyone who would get in his way, he would destroy at all costs, even if it was the anointed one of God. Even if it would cost Bethlehem's mothers their babies. Horrible. There are several sins that contribute to the image of Herod, the fool in this chapter. First, we see pride. He's immediately troubled. Not just troubled, but he's agitated, hearing that the Magi are looking for another king, a threat to his throne. So we see immediately the sin of pride. We see also a devising of an evil plan in lying. He lies straight to the Magi's face. Hey, go find the child. Come back to me so that I can worship him too. Obviously not his intention. An evil plan, a lie. And then we see his rash anger, and he sheds the innocent blood of all these children, these males. A horrific tragedy. Killing of the innocent. What does God think of these sins that Herod has committed? What does God think of them? Proverbs 6 tells us exactly what God thinks of them. A worthless person... A wicked man goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. If that isn't a politician, I don't know what is. With perverted heart, 
devising evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Note these. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. Here's Herod, the king of the Jews. Herod the fool commits all these sins that the Lord hates, and he sets himself in direct opposition to the appointed king, directly opposed to Jesus, wanting to destroy him. Is that a good idea? Is that a good position to be in, opposed to the Messiah? Let's see what the Scriptures say about the ones who oppose the Messiah. Psalm 2, 2 through 2-6. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want to submit to them. We don't want to surrender to another king. What does he in the heavens do? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You deride my anointed one. No, no, no. I hold you in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Later, later in the chapter, kiss the sun. Honor the king. Bow your knee, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. How does it end for the one who opposes the king? Ruin. Destruction. The wrath of God. Doesn't go well for Herod. Josephus, the historian, tells us that Herod died of, get this, this is how he died, ulcerated intestines, maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, and foul breath. (laughs) Neither physician or warm baths could soothe his pain. Let me tell you, that condition pales in comparison to his condition now as he died a man under the wrath of God for for opposing his king. And what I find ironic, not mere coincidence, is the the chief priests and the scribes in this account. Their involvement. How involved are they? Well, they come and they do what Herod, their king, asks them to do. They tell him the prophecy. They quote to him. They hear undoubtedly the word of the Magi who they're asking for where the king of the Jews is because they know he's been born. And are they interested in the least? No. They're uninterested. They're indifferent. They could walk a stone's throw to Bethlehem to at least validate the claim, but they decide not to. Wouldn't they ask more questions? Wouldn't they want to follow them to see if their claims are true? I mean, this could be the Messiah that they were looking for. What's their posture towards the king? They're indifferent. 
But we know, because we'll read the rest of the story, that that indifference easily slides to rejection and opposition. Indifference in this chapter becomes more and more like their foolish predecessor in the rest of the gospel account. Their pride is troubled when Jesus challenges their authority. They connive and plan his execution for months, years. And ultimately, they do what Herod didn't they kill the king. They crucify Jesus Christ, the only truly innocent man to ever live. But Peter says in Acts 2, you crucified Jesus, but He was delivered. Ah, don't, don't be mistaken. You didn't kill Jesus and leave Him dead. You worked according to the predetermined plan of God to have His Messiah, His Son, His Anointed One, crucified on the cross, to die, not just be physically tortured, but to suffer under My wrath so that it could atone for the sins of His people. Jesus, yes, indeed was crucified, but three days later He rose again, conquering sin and death, and now is ascended to the right hand of the Father. And what's His title? King of kings. Lord of lords. Praise God. Glory be to Christ. What we have to learn from these Pharisees, these scribes and priests, that indifference is not a neutral position. We can't take a neutral position to Jesus. We can't be quote-unquote lukewarm. We can't just rationally assent to the facts that Jesus was born a man and that He died on the cross and that He rose again. As if it doesn't matter. Jesus is King. And we either bow our knee to Him in this life and worship Him as King, or we die under the wrath of God and we reject Him ultimately as King. Indifference is not neutral. Indifference is opposition. And understand this, Jesus will get your knee. He will get your knee. He will get your knee in this life or He'll get your knee in judgment. You will bow. And declare Him King of kings and Lord of lords. Don't set your heart against Him. Receive Him as King. Worship Him as King as the Magi did in this account. Romans 10.9 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Receive that call. Respond to that call today if you have not already. If your current attitude is indifference, Surrender to the King today. Bow at His feet and worship Him. Worship Him. And if you do know the King, if you have bowed your knee to Christ, glory be to Him. Worship Him all the more. Love Him all the more for fulfilling these prophecies, for being the man that you needed. And He came at the right time to die for our sins. Give Him your best, not your leftovers. Worship Him in a way that He deserves. All of yourself. All of yourself for all that He is. Just as the Magi did. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank You for sending Jesus Christ, God who became a man, 
to live a perfect life, the perfect life we couldn't live, ultimately to die a death that we deserved, but you took in our place. And praise you, God, that he did not stay dead in the ground, but he rose again from the grave, conquering sin and death, victorious, our true high king, ascended at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back. We believe that. The king will take his rightful place on this earth, rule from the Davidic throne over all nations. And Lord, we await that day. We long for that day to see our king again face to face and to be with him in his kingdom. God, I pray that your kingdom come and your will be done. May we worship Christ with all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.